Once again, it's time for Diffusion. And strap yourself in, because it's going to be a wild roller coaster ride from here. Well, at least a mild roller coaster ride anyway. Coming up on this week's show, we've got Blue Bottles, how they get around and what they did to Lachlan's legs this summer. And we'll also be checking out steroids, how they work, but more importantly, the incredible side effects. And if we can fit anything else in there, we will. But as always, before we can get to anything else, here's all the science news with Ian Wolfe. <music> Apparently, there are huge amounts of inedible caramel and nougat waste from chocolate factories being dumped into landfill in Europe. Microbiologist Lynn McCaskey and her colleagues at the University of Birmingham in the UK have fed this to a fuel cell with mutant intestinal bacteria that munch the sweet stuff and give off hydrogen. Hydrogen can be turned into electricity, burned as fuel, or used by the same bacteria to recover metal from used catalytic converters to make more mutant bacterial fuel cells. I think this leads us inevitably to the chocolate waste-powered car. One of the problems with a hydrogen-powered car is that the fuel tankers trucking the stuff to petrol stations tend to explode. Chocolate tankers wouldn't explode. Hydrogen is too dangerous to transfer over pipelines. Nougat and caramel are safe for pipes. As an added benefit, the fuel is free, and hydrogen fuel doesn't hurt the climate because it's not a greenhouse gas. The wonderful thing about using fuel cells to generate electricity electrochemically instead of burning stuff is that burning stuff produces tiny particles that harm human health. They start hurting people suffering asthma at first, but ultimately they hurt everybody. But what about the residue that the bacteria don't convert into hydrogen? Applications of bacterial hydrogenases into waste decontamination, manufacture of novel bio-nanocatalysts and in sustainable energy, published in the Biochemical Society Transactions, doesn't tell us what happens to the waste from the waste. Fortunately, Cosmos magazine reports that there are thermal conversion process systems to turn any carbon-based waste into fuel oil that can be burned in cars and power stations. Osmotech in Australia convert waste plastic into diesel oil. Osmotech produce up to 18,000 litres of diesel from 20 tonnes of waste around the world, but not at home in Australia. The federal government scared backers into taking their money away from Australia in 2005 by announcing an excise tax on fuel from recycled plastic. So now we just have 800,000 tonnes of plastic waste to manage every year, and we import our oil. Plastic was originally made from fossil fuel, so fuel made from it and burned will add to the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and hurt the climate. On the other hand, the plastic would have been polluting the environment if it wasn't reused. There's a trade-off of costs and benefits to be considered. World-changing technologies in the USA convert animal carcasses, and eventually sewerage, into fuel oil at extremely high temperatures. Offal-based oil exhaust fumes don't smell as good as cars running on vegetarian biodiesel, which smell like popcorn. The animals ate plants, and the plants took carbon out of the atmosphere. Burning the meat oil just returns the carbon from whence it came, with no effect on the climate. Sewerage could go through the process to make oil also. Even the waste from the caramel and nougat-powered cars could be turned into more fuel by thermal conversion process plants. The waste is just high-grade, sterile agricultural fertiliser. The Australian Federal Government has also closed down the Australian end of the Mallee Oil Project. The plan was to grow eucalyptus trees and to harvest them for oil to be burned in a power plant. The waste would become activated charcoal. Activated charcoal is commercially valuable as a filter for air and water. 
This would not be adding carbon to the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere because the carbon in the trees would have been extracted from the atmosphere in the first place. In fact, because of the deep underground roots, the eucalyptus trees aren't killed by harvesting. They just keep on growing. This means that as the root systems get bigger, they act as carbon sinks. Australia is presently a net importer of eucalyptus oil, despite the fact that eucalyptus are native here. As well as being flammable, eucalyptus oil can replace poisonous solvents like trichloroethane, be used in pesticides, gasohol, aromatherapy mixtures, decongestant applications, flavouring, pain relief, insect repellent, and as an industrial deodorising agent. The model renewable power plant was shut down just before the federal government opened up the uranium mining debate. In March of this year, Sydney beaches changed colour from yellow to yellow with blue stripes. This was due to a massive invasion of blue bottles, and it's taken this long for the welts on Lachlan Watmore's feet and legs to heal, so he can tell you a little bit about their biology. Faisalia Faisalia, the Portuguese man of war, is a siphon off for a Nidarian, more commonly called a blue bottle. Let's throw him down the well. Sorry, getting a little gurney there. If you hear an announcement on the radio warning of marine stingers on the beach, chances are it's Faisalia they're talking about. The Portuguese man of war is a common sight on Australian beaches, made very conspicuous by its blue colour, long trailing blue tentacles, and a large puckered float sack which is coloured blue. I don't know if you know this, but Physalia isn't just one individual animal, but instead a colony of different individuals who have specialised into various tasks. Now, according to my old copy of Invertebrate Zoology by Robert M. Barnes, quote, members of the order Siphonophora, which includes the familiar Physalia, exist as large pelagic colonies composed of modified polypoid and medusoid individuals, the majority displaying a remarkable degree of polymorphism. What the bloody hell does that mean, I can hear you ask? Well... Blue bottles, like jellyfish, sea anemones, corals and box jellyfish, are members of the animal phylum Cnidaria. Unlike anemones, corals, etc., Physalia is a member of the Cnidarian order Siphonophora, which covers all Cnidarian colonies which are pelagic, which means free-swimming. Now, Cnidarians tend to come in two general forms. One is the medusa, of which jellyfish are the best example. A medusoid individual is free-swimming and bell-shaped with lots of tentacles, like a jellyfish or box jellyfish. The other general Cnidarian shape is the polyp, of which the sea anemone is the best example. Polyploid individuals are stationary and flower-shaped with lots of tentacles. What the Portuguese man of war does is get together a bunch of medusoid and polypoid individuals and band them together into a colony where each individual performs a special function and thus contributes to the colony while receiving the benefits of the other individuals. So your average Physalia contains an individual who has grown long tentacles for fishing, another individual who has enlarged its gastric cavity for digestion, yet another who makes eggs and or sperm for reproduction, and to keep the whole thing afloat, a specialised medusoid individual who creates the gas-filled float sack. So next time you get stung by a blue bottle, make sure you curse in plural. As the late, great Michael Flanders said, I do not care to share the seas with jellyfishes such as these, particularly Portuguese. And that was Lachlan Watmore with a quick thumbnail sketch of the Portuguese Man of War Blue Bottle. And you're listening to Diffusion right across Australia or right around the world via our podcast. And coming up, we've got steroids, the good, the bad and the ugly. (laughs) 
international sporting event wouldn't be the same unless it had some sort of performance-enhancing drug scandal. The use of anabolic steroids is frequently in the news and the illicit market for them is significant. Lachlan Watmore will now take a look at steroid use and see what steroids can do for you and what they can do to you.
Once upon a time, my father used to be one hell of a drug dealer. In the mid-80s, after spending most of his professional life as a practising veterinarian, he quit sticking his hand up horses' bottoms to start up a veterinary pharmaceutical company. The company had a variety of product lines, including Dad's own fully patented invention, Thrive, a dietary aid which prevented gastric reflux in ruminant animals and may have provided an electrical gradient for the absorption of charged nutrient compounds such as amino acids. In other words, my old man was a scientific genius. Chances are you've already seen one of my father's products, even if you have nothing to do with agriculture or animal husbandry in general. The product would have been either called Deca 50 or Stanozol, the place you would have seen at the television, and its use would have had nothing to do with animals, despite the w- words animal use only printed in large red letters on the label. Instead, a slightly hysterical journalist would have told you how, being anabolic steroids, Deca 50 and Stanozol were being illicitly used in various gyms around the country in a report no parent could afford to miss. Dad and his business partner decided to manufacture anabolic steroids because they saw, as virtually every manufacturer before them had, a market for it. And there certainly was, just not quite the market they envisaged. The market they saw involved mainly racehorses, who could injure themselves on the track and for whom a strictly regimented, limited course of steroids would work a treat in rebuilding their damaged muscles. The much larger market, from which they drew no profit, was the bodybuilding scene. Okay, so what are anabolic steroids? Well, according to the American Drug Enforcement Administration, known more famously as the DEA, anabolic steroids are synthetic variants of the male hormone testosterone. Testosterone is a sex hormone and is secreted by both males and females, though in larger quantities, by males. It's responsible for making boys grow into men. Testosterone is produced in large quantities during puberty and enables the growth of facial hair, the development of a functional reproductive system, an adolescence spent fighting off acne, and significantly the increase of lean muscle mass and subsequent gains in physical strength. Obviously, this is where testosterone and its synthetics become attractive to bodybuilders, athletes, security guards, construction workers, police officers, and other people for whom enhanced physical strength is regarded as desirable, if not downright necessary. So how do steroid hormones work? Well, a molecule of, say, testosterone enters a cell, let's say a muscle cell. After penetrating the cell membrane, it comes across a hormone receptor and binds with it, creating a large molecule called a complex. The complex then moves into the nucleus of the cell, where it interacts with the genetic material of the nucleus, causing the formation of new proteins, for example, muscle fibres, or if it is entered testicular tissue, the formation of sperm. So what the hormone does depends on the type of cell it has entered. The proper name for such steroids is anabolic androgenic steroids. The word anabolic refers to the building of muscle mass, and the word androgenic refers to the promotion of male characteristics. So why not manufacture a compound that increases muscle mass and doesn't promote virilization? The answer is because androgenic and anabolic properties tend to go hand in hand, increase muscle mass, and you inevitably increase male characteristics. Because the steroids with the most potent anabolic effect also have the most androgenic effect. However, that doesn't mean that men who abuse steroids are going to be super masculine. Synthetic steroids, as opposed to naturally occurring testosterone, are a bit selective in what characteristics they promote and what they leave to wither and die. Let's have a look at some of the side effects of anabolic androgenic steroid use. 
For starters, both sexes can expect high cholesterol levels because cholesterol is the biochemical precursor of testosterone. In other words, cholesterol is the raw material for the manufacture of all steroids, including testosterone. And if you look at the molecular structure of both compounds, you'll understand why. They both look very similar to each other. When the presence of a synthetic steroid is detected by the body, testosterone production is shut down, leaving a whole bunch of cholesterol with nothing to do except clog up your arteries. Secondly, both, both sexes can expect severe acne, just like having puberty all over again. Thirdly, both sexes can expect thinning of the hair, fluid retention, high blood pressure and liver disorders. And last but certainly not least, the list of sexual disorders for both sexes is alarming. In men, steroid abuse can lead to atrophy of the testicles, loss of libido, decreased sperm production, decreased semen volume, and a hormonal imbalance that leads to breast development, prostate enlargement, and in the long term, sterility. In women, you get menstrual irregularities, facial hair, oily skin, diminished breast size, enlargement of the clitoris, and a deepened voice which will not go away when you quit using the stuff. And those are just the physical effects of steroid abuse. Along with them, there's a whole raft of possible psychological disturbances, including violent mood swings, impaired judgment, depression, nervousness, and a hair-triggered temper, which can lead to so-called roid rage. Who will be more prone to roid rage and who won't is virtually impossible to predict, although the likelihood increases with the dosage. I sometimes wonder if the nasty men who robbed Dad's factory, forcing one of his employees who was working late to open the steroid cage with a gun to his head, were experiencing roid rage themselves. After pushing the young vet to the floor and putting a garbage pail over his head, they made off with the roids. Unfortunately, though, the employee got a look at the number plate of the car they were driving, and they were soon caught, because one of them had had the bright idea of using his mother's car. Obviously, steroid use does not increase intellect. Just before I go, I'd like to dedicate this feature to the memory of Lee Watmore, my late great-dad who we lost nearly ten years ago. I really miss you, Papa. That was Lachlan Watmore looking at how anabolic steroid use can ruin your love life. And finally, all the news that didn't make the news this week on Diffusion. And I believe you've got something about the latest in body modification technology. Yes, Matt. Wired magazine has a story about extrasensory perception by body modification. Body modification. Some artists wanted to implant super strong rare earth magnets under their skin so they could carry metal gadgets. This is kind of like, you know, when you've got a, a screwdriver, a magnetised screwdriver, so you can pick up little tiny screws that have fallen down cracks. That's right. Or yeah. even jewellery. Oh, okay. You know, right. something. These, okay. Are, these are artists. Yeah, naturally. Yeah. But it didn't work because the skin <laughs> trap between the magnets dies. Oh. And your body rejects the implant. Yeah. Now, they knew someone who, from an accident, was able to feel magnetic fields from audio speakers because of a splinter of iron embedded in his finger. So I thought, let's put these ideas together. You never so thought to take the splinter out? He, it was that, cool that's because he's a technician and he can feel the speakers. Mm. So they drafted Arizona University neuroscientist Ted Hoffman. And together they determined that the ring finger was the most expendable finger in case things went wrong. And it's rich in nerves and it's likely to move near magnetic fields. So you can actually feel something. Okay. So... The implanted magnet is in a little capsule, and it spins when it's near magnetic fields. Okay. 
And when it spins, it stimulates nervous. So you can feel it in your finger. You can feel little buzzing finger. in your finger. Okay. But you can't turn it off. No. So every time you went to the fridge, you're not going to get stuck to the fridge, are you? You're not going to get stuck to the fridge. It's not quite that powerful. You're going to feel it, though. But, well, you're going to feel the current in the fridge and in the motors, but you're not going to have your finger stuck to the fridge. Can you pick up tiny screws that have fallen down cracks? Yes. Cool. Oh, okay. Little tiny screws. Yeah, okay. Mm. Not very big ones. No. And you can't wipe credit cards and hard drives are safe. Okay. That's good. So... It's kind of a bit sort of almost useful-ish. You know, electric stovetops, motors, live electric cables. You could avoid being electrocuted. Cool. That's always a good thing. But otherwise it seems a bit, I don't know. I could see some applications for, but something I could see some serious medical applications for is something that's being developed for uh, application in Africa. Lachlan, I believe you have something about um, some topical antiviral Defense. I certainly do, Matt. Um, right here in Australia, an Australian company called Star Pharma, which is based in Melbourne, uh, has begun trials for an anti-AIDS gel rather than an actual uh, tablet or you know, injection that you get. So how would that, an, an anti-AIDS gel, how mm. would that actually work? Uh, basically, you use it, uh, a woman would uh, put it uh, some in her vagina before having sex. Um, whether it would work in homosexual contact, I have no idea. Um, so it's not a it's not a vaccine as such. No, it's, it's, not, a it's preventative. Not a vaccine. It's a preventative. It's a topical. Uh, uh, what do you call it? You know, ointment. Virus killing ointment. Virus killing ointment. Mm. That's the one. And um, it has been forwarded to the uh, United States Food and Drug Administration uh, to be given clearance for phase one human trials. And this should be pretty good uh, in Africa because, and also in in other uh, fairly poor countries. Where there is a culture of either not using condoms or the use of condoms is a fairly sort of selective thing. It's not uh, particularly mandatory. And um, the uh, report I've got here from CNN says uh, they, the topical cream would be particularly useful for women in poor countries as it gives them more control in helping prevent disease, particularly in cultures where condoms are a male-dominated product. Uh, women are also more vulnerable to con- contracting HIV from a single sexual encounter. Um, mm. you know, and the statistics, as you know, from a lot of these third world places are pretty alarming. What have we got here? Recent Australian government aid report says the working population of Papua New Guinea could be cut by 38% by 2020 if infection rates follow those seen in Zimbabwe. So, you know, this just might, might help. Um, so we can be doing good by doing well. We could be doing do good by doing well. The um, uh, results from uh, testing on monkeys have been very, very good. Uh, it's 100% effective in preventing uh, HIV and uh, other sexually transmitted diseases in primate trials. Uh, using macaque, a single using macaques, a single application of the Vivagel proved 100% effective against the monkey version of HIV. I believe that's called SIV, simian immunodeficiency virus. Do we know As, when it will be available? Well, we're, we're, yes, it says so here. Well, I'll just try and find it here. About three years' time. It's only in uh, phase one trials at the moment, so it'll, be, it'll take some time before it's completely cleared. Uh, but it should be about three, three to five years, it says so, uh, before it's actually available over the counter. So there we go. A topical anti-AIDS cream coming to a chemist near you.
Sadly, that's all we have time for on this edition of Diffusion. Warming the seats on this week's show were Ian Wolfe and Lachlan Watmore. If you'd like any information on any of the topics we doubled in this week, if you can read the Daily Telegraph without your lips moving, or if you need something to keep you awake so you can watch World Cup football at 2am, you can email us on diffusion at 2SER.com. This week, Diffusion was produced by Ian up here in the studios of 2SER Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. We're also broadcast wherever you happen to be via our podcast at feeds.feedburner.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Matthew Clark, and I hope to see you back here next week for another round of science news and views on Diffusion. Diffusion.